0: The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe.
1: This is Jacob
2: Yasha Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. David Kaufman, the chief of critical care at Bridgeport Hospital, a teaching hospital affiliated with Yale University. His interests include sepsis, acute lung injury, and septic shock. Welcome, Dr. Kaufman.
0: Thanks, Yasha. Today, I'm happy to say that we're going to be joined by Dr. Yaya Shahabi, who is the lead author on the article, Early Intensive Care Sedation Predicts Long-Term Mortality in Ventilated Critically Ill Patients, an article that appeared in the October 15, 2012 edition of the Blue Journal. Dr. Shahabi is an associate professor at the School of Medicine at the University of New South Wales, Sydney, Australia. He is also the chairman of the Intensive Care Foundation of Australia and New Zealand. He is the medical director of the Clinical Program of Acute, Complex, and Chronic Community Health Care and director of intensive care research at the Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney, Australia. His research focus is on ICU sedation practice delirium monitoring and management, and biomarkers of bacterial infection and sepsis, prevention of diagnosis of acute kidney injury in the critically ill, and he has given numerous international presentations and published many related articles in peer-reviewed journals. He is currently the chief investigator of two CTG-endorsed multi-center trials in the Australia-New Zealand intensive care units, including the SPICE program. I'm also joined today by the discussion Dr. Jonathan Savransky, Director of the Emory University Hospital Medical Intensive Care Unit and Assistant Director for Medicine at the Emory Center for Critical Care. Thank you both for joining us. Dr. Shahabi, you and your team examined the level of sedation in a cohort of 251 patients in 25 intensive care units in Australia and New Zealand, and you followed them for depth of sedation and several clinical outcomes. Can you tell us a little bit about your methods? In particular, please describe how you define heavy and light sedation that the patients received. How did you classify the patients and divide them up into heavy and light?
1: Thank you, uh, David. This was a longitudinal prospective cohort study where we enrolled subjects who were expected to be ventilated for longer than 24 hours. They were followed from ICU admission to ICU discharge for 28 days whichever came first, with four hourly sedation assessment and daily delirium assessment. We used the Richmond agitation sedation scale, the RAS for the sedation assessment, and the CAM-RCU for the delirium assessments. We collected demographic data at baseline, which is ICU admission. We also collected daily sedative, analgesic, and antipsychotic prescription, including amount given every day per kilogram, We collected ventilation times, ICU stay, hospital stay, ICU hospital and six months survival outcomes were also collected. Over the study period, we conducted more than 14,700 RAS assessments over 2,778 study days. The deep sedation was defined in our study as a RAS that is between minus three to minus five Light sedation was defined as a RAS that is between minus 2 and plus 1. The CAM ICU was only assessed during light sedation. That is only when the patient is between a RAS of minus 2 to plus
0: 1. So let me just follow up. You classified folks with a very negative RAS as heavily sedated, and then you classified folks... With light sedation as a RAS between minus two and plus one, which means they were either awake or easily arousable to light stimulus. But in the end, when you looked at outcomes, you treated, it seems to me, heavy and light sedation more or less as a binary category. That is, patients were either heavily sedated or lightly sedated. So how did you come up with that final grouping of I'm going to assign an individual patient to the heavy sedation cohort or to the light sedation cohort.
1: Although the RAS is a categorical scale, what we've done with the assignment of heavy sedation or light sedation is to use the category of minus 2 to plus 1 as a continuous scale and the category of minus 3 to minus 5 also as a continuous scale. As the rest has been measured every four hours, you kind of have a continuum of time during which the patient has spent in deep sedation or in light sedation. So essentially it's a surrogate of the time the patient spent in light sedation, and that's how we treated the duration that a patient spent in deep sedation or in light sedation.
0: So more or less what kind of cutoff point did you use to... Assign an individual patient to the deep sedation cohort or the light sedation cohort in terms of... sounds like you, you came up with a surrogate for area under the curve in terms of amount of time at a deep RAS and amount of time at an early rest. So h- how did you make that decision about light versus heavy?
1: We did not make a light versus heavy based on a single RAS or a couple of RAS or two or three RAS. We've made it based on the incremental amount of time that a patient spent in the sedation range, either deep or light sedation.
0: Dr. Sobranski, you and some colleagues have uh, actively been working on somewhat related research project where you've been looking at ICU processes, including sedation, and the effects of these processes on patient outcomes. Could you explain to us how closely related are your research ideas to the research performed by Dr. Shahabi and what is your perspective on Dr. Shahabi's research methodology? Thank you, David.
2: So, I think it may be helpful to speak first about Dr. Shahabi's study. As mentioned, they performed a, an interesting prospective observational trial examining the level of sedation in a cohort of critically ill patients in 25 intensive care units in Australia and New Zealand. And I'd like to talk for a moment about some of the advantages of doing an observational trial. As you mentioned, we, we are currently doing several of these. Given that this study was done with a waiver of informed consent and Dr. Shahabi and his colleagues enrolled patients who both met inclusion criteria and did not meet the exclusion criteria. The investigators were able to enroll patients who are likely to be representative of critically ill patients in other ICUs, an argument that the authors make in the manuscript. If you will, the the external validity of their findings is likely to be good. In contrast, when you do an interventional trial, most interventional trials need to screen a large number of patients to enroll a few. For example, the recent trial, the PRODEX trial of dexmedetamidine versus midazolam, over 11,000 patients were screened to enroll 500, which means that there is a strong possibility that the patients enrolled may be different than patients that a clinician might see at their bedside. So a prospective cohort study, such as this one, will allow the ability to both examine current practice and also examine the association between specific exposures, which in this study was deep sedation, and clinical outcomes. It's important to note that there are some limitations to cohort studies, just like there are advantages. First of all, in a cohort study such as this one, Investigators can only demonstrate association of a predictor to an outcome rather than causality. Any differences between groups can only be determined to be related. Usually you require an interventional trial to determine causality. Another major issue with an observational trial is that one can't rule out the possibility that there are unmeasured confounders that may explain any treatment differences. So David, as you mentioned, we are currently performing a number of observational trials, multicenter trials, in an attempt to find linkages between certain processes of care, such as sedation and ICU structure, and patient outcomes, important patient outcomes. So in that matter, our studies are similar and share both the advantages of observational trials with Dr. Shahabi's, but also the limitations of the study
0: design. Dr. Shahabi, you and your colleagues found associations between the depth of early sedation and several important clinical outcomes. And I'm hoping that you can summarize for us the associations you found between deep sedation and clinical outcomes.
1: We found that deep sedation was quite common at baseline, which is at RCU admission, 76% of patients were deeply sedated at baseline. 48 hours later, 62% of all RAS assessments were in the deep sedation range and more than 60 plus percent of patients were also in the deep sedation range. When we conducted a multivariable analysis, We found that early deep sedation, that is, sedation occurring in the first 48 hours after initiation of mechanical ventilation, was independently associated with longer time to extubation, hospital, and six months mortality. The occurrence of deep sedation, that is, a RAS of minus 3 to minus 5, increased the hazard ratio for delayed extubation by 10%, Risk of hospital death by 11% and six months mortality by 8%. Also, contrary to commonly believed that early deep sedation is associated with delirium, we could not find in our multivariate analysis that early deep sedation was associated with time to delirium that occurred after 48 hours. We also found that midazolam and fentanyl were also predictive of delayed extubation independent of sedation dips.
0: So, Dr. Savransky, as Dr. Shahabi was mentioning, many of those outcome associations were found by a form of statistical regression known as Cox proportional hazards modeling. And one potentially important finding is that the hazard ratio for death at 180 days was about 8% higher in patients who received early deep sedation. From what I can understand, hazard ratios, especially when they're applied to Cox proportional hazard models, may show a difference in the shape of two survival curves, but they may not necessarily indicate a difference in raw mortality. And I was hoping that you could comment on this important difference.
2: David, as you know, I am not a biostatistician, but I will, to the best of my ability, try to answer your question. A survival curve is a time-to-event analysis, and this type of analysis, which is commonly done for studies that have hard outcomes such as mortality, allows the investigator to capture information about patients who are at risk of having a particular outcome again in this study 180 day mortality this type of analysis in short term icu studies has several potential concerns first of all a type of therapy may show an improvement in survival that will prolong a patient's life while they're in the intensive care unit but not afterwards as such You may have a finding that is statistically significant, but does not provide an outcome that most patients and most clinicians would consider to be a good outcome. Most people, I think, would not like to spend more time alive on a ventilator or on dialysis in the ICU prior to dying. Secondly, and this is more of a theoretical concern, patients die not in a uniform proportion while they're in the ICU. And usually, when you're looking at a survival curve, one of the assumptions that you're making is that the event rate, again, here is mortality, has a uniform distribution, that events happen at relatively the same frequency throughout the time. And again, that does not usually occur in the ICU. Having mentioned all of the limitations, one of the things that Dr. Shahabi's group did that probably avoids some of these concerns is they picked an outcome at 180 days. And that 180-day outcome, for most patients, they are likely to be out of the hospital and out of long-term care, at least as in many instances. So they may potentially have avoided some of the complications used in this type of analysis.
0: Dr. Shahabi, I was hoping you could comment on your choice of methodology here and the pros and cons of using Cox proportional hazards modeling with a hazard ratio to compare the shape of the two survival curves. And in terms of looking at 180-day mortality, Why not just compare the raw mortality in the light sedation group versus the heavy sedation group and use something like the Fisher's exact test to compare the mortality in each group?
1: I think it's very important to understand that there are events that happens to patients while they're in ICU that are time dependent and it is important to adjust for the time dependency of these events. It is possible that you would have a significant difference using a Cox proportional hazard regression while your raw mortality has no, showed no difference. It is possible. The reason for this is that the Cox proportional hazard regression model itself looks at time to death rather than death itself, uh, or time to uh, extubation, or time to delirium, time to event analysis. So if you're looking at two groups that are in an RCT, you know, the randomization takes care of a lot of that stuff that you're worried about. But in a cohort analysis, you are open widely to what we call the kind of an immortal bias which is basically the events that's going to happen to patients in intensive care or through the time of observation that are time-dependent. For example, the amount of sedation they receive during their ICU stay, the amount of vasopressors, whether it's being dialyzed or so. So the reason we have chosen a cox-proportional hazard model is that we made a, a line in the sand at 48 hours, and we said we are going to look at What's going to happen to patients after 48 hours? So we assumed that at the time of 48 hours onwards, there is a kind of a constant hazard to patients on every day across the study as they go after 48 hours. That's the reason why we chosen the Cox proportional hazard in this occasion. Using a chi-square for this group would probably reveal similar results to what the comparing two raw mortalities. However, it would not adjust for any of the independent variables that we tested for during that 48 hours. That's why we've used the proportional hazard model to test for the outcomes. I think one of the important things that we also looked at is that the proportional hazard model itself is an excellent model. It's a semi-parametric technique that is considerably more powerful than modeling this alone as a binomial event. It enables accurate modeling of all the time-dependent variables which mortality cannot address if you do it just as a raw mortality. And as such, usually People report both mortality and time to death. If and if the results are different, then that could be explained. In our case, both the Kaplan-Meier and also the Cox has a proportional model showed difference in death and time to death based on the early sedation depth, light versus deep sedation.
0: Thanks, Dr. Shahabi, for that elegant and complete description of your statistical methods. I think that that's the kind of thing that's hard to make come across in writing, and when said out loud, seems to make a lot more sense. Dr. Sebranski, you mentioned before, and the authors of the paper mentioned in their conclusion that there are some important limitations to the findings they present, especially the inability to account for residual confounding factors, especially unmeasured aspects of severity of illness. And I was hoping that you could discuss some of the real-world limitations of the findings presented.
2: Thank you, David. As both you and Dr. Shahabi and his colleagues have mentioned in their manuscript, by nature of the study design, the authors are not able to rule out unmeasured confounders, that is, facts that are associated both with the exposure being studied, which is deep sedation, and the outcomes, time to extubation and mortality. The authors attempt to control for this using a multivariable analysis, which include many factors that we think about, such as severity of illness and age, renal failure, factors that are known to be associated with important clinical outcomes. But in many observational trials, there are factors that are unlikely that the investigators can control for or even find. and. Several previous studies where such findings have been shown include the support study that looked at the effect of a pulmonary artery catheter in a large cohort of patients, and while the observational study suggested that the pulmonary artery catheter was associated with mortality, and statistically significantly so, when subsequent randomized controlled trials were done, uh, no such association was found. It was neither beneficial or harmful. Another more recent study in which the issue of unmeasured confounders is likely important is a recent trial looking at the effect of critical care physicians on patient outcomes that suggested that patients who were exposed to critical care physicians had worse outcomes than those who didn't, and the authors in this manuscript used something called a propensity score to try to adjust for factors that could be associated with bad outcomes. But what most people, including myself, believe is that likely people who were seen by critical care physicians as opposed to those who weren't were likely sicker in ways that just could not be picked up by looking at a chart or a database. The other important limitation that needs to be mentioned is that the sample size of the study is relatively small. It's got 250 patients, and smaller studies are both more likely to overestimate the size of treatment effects compared with larger studies, and also potentially to find treatment effects that may not be true which I think is important in this study because the authors have four separate primary outcome measures, again, raising the possibilities that the investigators potentially could find a treatment effect when none is present. It is, however, important to note that all studies have limitations and that the limitations that I just mentioned While, again, it's important to know that in no way diminishes the interesting and important finding of the investigators, namely that early deep sedation appears prevalent and is a potentially modifiable risk factor for bad outcomes in patients.
0: Dr. Shahabi, so two questions to finish up. What were the potential limitations that you and your co-authors considered as you were drafting this paper, and where do you and your colleagues plan to take this research next?
1: I think Jonathan uh, stated out many of the limitations that came across our mind. One of the limitations that came through our mind is, uh, is this a phenomenon that we're only seeing in, say, New Zealand intensive care units? Is it just a phenomena really seen in our RCUs by our nurses and the way we practice? For that reason, we did conduct a similar cohort studies both in um, Singapore and in Malaysia, in 11 intensive care units in Malaysia and in uh, 9 intensive care units in Singapore. And the results of those cohorts concurred almost exactly in the same direction with our results, which really means that what we found about early deep sedation and its association with bad outcomes is not a local phenomenon. It's actually a universal problem that needs uh, f- further attention. From there on, our research agenda really is to take this further into a staged program, which this was the first phase of the stage program is to identify what is the current sedation practice in Australia and New Zealand and also reveal if there is any modifiable risk for bad outcomes of this practice. In this case, it was early deep sedation. What we learned from our investigational trials so far is that future sedation trials should randomize patients as soon as possible after initiation of mechanical ventilation. We probably should not be testing drug A versus drug B anymore. We also should have a control arm that reflects current practice and be flexible about it. Most patients who are sedated in RCUs receive more than one agent at any one time, and rigid protocols that does not allow that often doesn't um, appear to be consistent with current practice that people are doing. Based on this, we have commenced the second phase of our research program, which was to test a process of care that would reduce the occurrence of early deep sedation and investigate any possible benefits. This was tested in a pilot study, and I'm pleased to say that the pilot study results will be presented at the forthcoming Society of Critical Care Medicine meeting in Puerto Rico in January 2013. I think we're uh, we about to see the launch of a very exciting chapter in the future of RCU sedation.
0: Today we discussed Dr. Shahabi's article, Early Intensive Care Sedation Predicts Long-Term Mortality in Ventilated, Critically Ill Patients, which appeared in the October 15, 2012 edition of the Blue Journal. We discussed the complex methodology and statistical analysis that allowed Dr. Shahabi and his colleagues to draw some conclusions about early sedation practices, and clinically important outcomes in critically ill individuals. Thank you very much for joining us.